You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. As we get into Jesus' final night here on the earth, it's Thursday night of Passion Week. And Lord, as we come to your word, to the text, it's just my heart that the people don't see Rory, that they're not distracted by Rory, but they see Jesus, that we hear Jesus, that we are exhorted and encouraged and rebuked and corrected and uh, equipped as we come to your word today. We pray that you would just do all of those works in us, save those that need to be saved, God, and, and change those that need to be changed. Transform us today by the renewing of our mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Thursday night of Passion Week as Jesus is in Jerusalem. Uh, it's the night that he's going to be arrested and he's going to fulfill the purpose by which he came to the earth. You know, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his purpose of coming to the earth. And so it's, a, it's a, one of the saddest chapters in Scripture, a saddest couple of chapters in Scripture. You can only imagine what Jesus is going through, having a friend betray him, a friend deny him, uh, and his father turn his face from him. So a, a, a sad, difficult chapter to go through when we see our Savior suffer like this. And as we're in verse 21, you remember two weeks ago, the week before Easter Sunday, uh, Jesus had the disciples go out and get the upper room ready. Um, they went and prepared the Passover meal, and then the disciples all went and ate the Passover, and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He explained communion to us. We did a whole study on communion. But it was also at that time that Satan had basically possessed Judas Iscariot. In another gospel puts it, Satan had put into Judas's heart how he was going to betray him. So some very dark spiritual stuff going around uh, Judas Iscariot there. He had, he's planning on how to betray Jesus. And so as they're at the table, Jesus tells the boys that one of them at the table is going to betray him. And it's there in verse 21 where he says, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it's been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's been betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. You know, Matthew's gospel tells us, Jesus says, you know, it's the guy who dips his bread in the bowl at the same time as me. As soon as Jesus would have said that, I would have set my bread aside, said I'm totally full, I'm fasting, you know, um, but you can just picture, you know, that, uh, <laughs> you know, right when you're going to put your bread in, Jesus gets his hand up there to dip at the same time as you. Whoa, you almost got me there, buddy. Huh? You're not going to catch this guy. Got to wake up pretty early in the morning, you know, uh, you know, but you know, Jesus and Judas, they dipped at the same time. It says that all of the disciples asked, is it me? Is it me? And they became sorrowful and, and worried. You know, is it me? Am I going to betray you? And it says, even Judas asked, am I going to betray you? And Jesus says, you've said it. You've said it. It's you. And so, you know, verse 23, they're questioning, they're asking, is it me? Is it me? And verse 24 says, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And so you can kind of see how this would turn this direction. You know, is it me? Is it me? You know, well, it's probably not me. I mean, I'm, I really love Jesus and you know, I, I, I've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, not only am I not going to deny Jesus, but, and, and betray Jesus, but I'm probably one of the best disciples here. I mean, if I got to say, I'm pretty good. You know, what are you talking about? You're not good. Well, I've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, I'm in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, you know, we're always taking places with Jesus. Well, I only don't get to go because I'm the one that's shopping for all the groceries for our little clubhouse that we have. You know, it's not my fault that I've got all the response. Well, how dare you? You know, and they just went from, is it me going to betray you, Lord? To, well, I'm better than you, you know? <laughs> and it's funny because Jesus was always having this problem with the boys. 
You know, he was always giving them these lessons in humility. You remember when James and John's mom came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm going to ask you something. Whatever I ask for, I I want you to do it. And Jesus very wisely said, tell me what it is. (laughs) And he said, I want you to uh, let my sons sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. When you get to Jerusalem and you kick the Romans out of Dodge, you know, I want you to set them up next to you and give them a great spot of authority. I mean, they're the best, aren't they, my boys? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for one thing. For another thing, it's not up for me to decide. I mean, are your boys able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Well, of course, I like any sort of beverage. And, you know, I'm not talking about drinking. I'm talking about the cup of, of suffering that I'm about to drink. Well, sure we are. He says, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. And then the other disciples, when they heard that James and John's mom had had done this, they got mad at James and John. And then they started arguing about, you know, how they were better. So Jesus gave them a lesson on humility. Another time they're on the road to Capernaum and they're disputing on the road, like kids fight in the backseat of a car. And as they're walking along, you know, Jesus hears them fighting and he fi- they finally get to Capernaum and he says, what was it that you guys were fighting about on the road? Oh, nothing, no biggie. You know, they totally kind of like pushed it off. And he goes, I know what, you know, it says he knows what they were arguing about. And he gave them a lesson on humility uh, because, because he knew their heart. And so here again, it's the night he is going to be betrayed and arrested and the trial is going to begin and they're fighting about who is better. But don't you see yourself in this? <laughs> Tell you, I see myself in this. This is Rory right here. Uh, and so he says to them in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. So he says in the world, to the world, and, and Gentiles at that time, you know, he's talking about the guys you consider the pagans. All of those kings, they lord with a rod of iron and, and you know, they, they demand and they want people to serve them. And the world calls them benefactors or, you know, philanthropists or good men. But Jesus says, you know, verse 26, but not so among you. You know, to the world, men, we do everything that we can to get to the top of the corporate ladder. We step on whoever's head that we have to do to get there. We make fun of people. We tear them down. We, you know, we manipulate the situation to try to get at the top, to be the manager, to be the CEO, to be the guy that makes the most money and have the most status. And Jesus says that might be the way it's done in the world's economy, but not, you might underline this, but not so among you, both with the disciples and with the Christians, with Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Not, it should not be so among you, but on the contrary, the he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who, is the, who governs um, as him who serves. So with Jesus, greatness comes through service. Man, I know, I feel like this is probably the third time we've taught on this since I've been in town, you know, because Jesus is always repeating it and the epistles are always repeating it. And as long as I'm here, we're always going to have it repeated because I need to hear it. You need to hear it. That greatness doesn't come through our pride and being puffed up and slamming our brother, but it comes through being humble and lowly and serving our brother. We're to be as the younger You know, the younger person is the guy who has no claims to anything great. He hasn't done anything good. He's still learning stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, the younger person sits in the backseat of the car, sits at the bad spot at the table, does the chores around the house that the older, more prominent people don't want to do. And Jesus says, you need to be like that young person, the little brother. You got to be the little brother. Be as the younger Verse 27, for who is greater? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but I know some of you want to answer it anyways. He who sits at the table or he who serves? Who's better? Now think of the most fancy restaurant you've ever been to. Dylan's Grill, I'm sure. No. (laughs) You know, for me, I was thinking about something like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Portland. I don't know. Maybe that's really bad. You know. Ruth Chris Steakhouse. I mean, you got to buy everything a la carte. 
You know, you want a steak, it shows up, it's just a steak on a plate. Really good, expensive $50 steak or something like that, but nothing around it. Where's my Truman's? You know, doctor it up a little bit, you know. Well, okay, but that'll be another $15, another $20. A French fry comes on a plate, you know, and can I have like six more, you know? Um, You pay for it. But when you go to these fancy restaurants, you know, the, the man comes, he takes your order. That's the most you see of him the whole time. Other than that, you know, you're on a romantic date, you know, you're gazing into your wife's eyes, you know, you're talking about future children and all of that stuff. And, you know, but, you know, the waiter is coming and he's filling your glass and he's doing this and that and you don't even know he's there. That's a good waiter when you don't even know he's there. You're just, your gl- plate is full, your glass is full. And, and, you know, people in the world treat those guys like scum too, you know, like get out of my peripheral vision. I don't even want to see you, you know, and the Lord says, well, of course, the greater person is the guy sitting there with a napkin in his shirt eating the steak. But then he goes on to say, yet I am among you as the one who serves. I'm the one who's not there to be served. I'm the one there to serve. And I'm God. <laughs> I'm there to serve. And I love that Jesus doesn't just do as I say, not as I do sort of a thing. And well, yeah, all of you guys need to serve, but I mean, do you know who I am? Seriously. You know, uh, and, but no, he came as the example of a servant. He came as the example of humility. Whenever we talk about humility, your minds should automatically go to a, a few passages. One of them should be Philippians chapter two. All right. Whenever we talk about humility, I mean, you should be going Philippians chapter two. There is such a lesson there from Paul on humility where he says in Philippians two, verse three, let nothing that you do be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing that you do should be done out of a desire to see yourself succeed. And that's something we touched on a lot at the men's retreat, how the root of our sin is self. And really the root of self is pride. It's our God. We are our God. When we sin, we're choosing to worship ourself and our pleasures and what we want rather than worshiping the Lord and what he wants. And so Paul tells us, let nothing that we do be for yourself, selfish ambition or conceit. Then he goes on to say, but in lowliness of mind, in a low mindset, esteem others as better than yourself. The Greeks hated that phrase, lowliness of mind, because it meant to be humble-minded. And to be humble-minded meant, you know, that's what humble-minded meant. We got to be humble-minded. Everyone is better than us. To the Lord, that's a beautiful thing. He gives grace to the humble. Be humble and esteem everybody you know as better than you. Romans tells us with brotherly love, Give preference to one another. You could say it this way. I prefer you. No, I prefer you. I prefer you. You know, everybody else but me. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase. I must decrease. You must increase. I must decrease. Less of me, more of you. And so Jesus, the greatest example of this came as the one who serves. Philippians 2 goes on to say, this was the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who although he was God, he came to earth, not as the mighty ruler, but as the servant, humbling himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you know, the theme of the book of Mark is that Jesus is the servant And in chapter 10, verse 45, it says, the son of man did not come to be served. Get the palm branches, start waving them, make some fan on me here, you know, pop the grapes in my mouth, you know, but I came to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what God did. And yet for some reason we think we deserve better. You know, we think we deserve to be served. You know, we think our siblings should be the ones serving us or our wives. You know, we are worthy of having dinner ready when we get home. 
You know, even though she's been taking care of all the kids and cleaning the house and paying the bills and, you know, but by gosh, when I get home from counseling somebody on a Tuesday afternoon, I better have some grub on my plate when I get there, you know. It's not the case. Shouldn't be that way. Shouldn't be that way. It's encouraging for you to know that even pastors and leaders in the church need to walk in this example. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, pastors are told, shepherds are told, that we're not to lord over people in the church, but rather um, to be examples to the flock. If I teach you guys about serving, the man that you should be able to look to about serving should be your pastor. You know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't want to rule over you and tell you to do this stuff, but not do it myself. And so Jesus was the one who was among us serving, not sitting at the table being served. Verse 28, but you are those who've continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, the disciples, even, you know, uh, before the major persecution started with them, just walking around Israel with Jesus could be a stressful thing. You know, there were always mobs trying to kill him. I don't know if you've ever been in in a mob where maybe they weren't trying to kill you, but they were trying to kill your best friend. You know, you're going to have trouble sleeping that night. You know, Jesus was always being attacked, was always being hated. People were always trying to figure out how to kill him. And the disciples were around that all the time. You've been suffering with me, Jesus says, and they'll get an awesome reward. They'll sit as judges on thrones during the millennial reign. That's awesome for those 12 guys. You want to know what's something that's cool too? We Christians, those who are in Christ, will be given thrones as well. Revelation tells us to he who overcomes, I will grant for him to sit with me on thrones. I will give him thrones. A few different times that's mentioned. Man, we are not worth of, we're not worthy of that, are we? That is all grace on his end. Uh, and so he, he teaches them about being a servant. And then in verse 31, he's going to predict Peter's denial. But somewhere in between the lesson on humility and Peter's denial, John chapter 13 tells us that Jesus girded himself. He took off his, his outer cloak part, girded himself and began to wash their feet. And flip over to John chapter 13, verse 1. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to paraphrase it, but the way that the Lord lays out the lesson and explains it, I can't put it better than Jesus does. And so it says, you know, verse two, after supper was ended, the devil already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you'll know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus does more than a symbol of humility, but physically shows humility. He was humble before these guys. Guys, you know, it's a symbol, though, of him washing away the sins of the world. 
He tells Peter, you know, if, if I can't wash you, you have no part in me. It's the same with us today. Jesus wants to wash you and regenerate you, cleanse you by the work he did on the cross. But if you won't let him and you'll stay in your sins and your filthy condition, you have no part with Jesus. You're still in your sins. You're unregenerate. If you won't let Jesus wash you clean, you have no part with him. And you feel sorry for Peter here. It just seems like Peter never can say anything right. You know, he's always getting, you know, no, Lord, you're not going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Get thee behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You know, whoa, you know, sorry. <laughs> you know, always saying the wrong stuff. Later, you know, we're going to see him deny Jesus. Just can never say stuff right. Lord, you're, you're my God. What are you doing washing my feet? No, not so. You're not going to do it. Well, if I'm not going to do it, then you have no part with me. Okay, my hands and my head, my whole body, just wash me. No, no, you just need your feet washed. You know, he, he tried to overcompensate, you know. And uh, that was me, you know, in middle school, you can just never say anything right, you know, and always the dork, you know, but I'm just like Peter. Um, the Lord knows that. And so just this awesome heart of humility, but Jesus says, I've given it to you as an example. If I'm your Lord and teacher and I wash your feet, how much more should you wash each other's feet? Is that happening now, it seems like the practice of washing feet, you know, the culture, you know, they walked around with sandals on, dirty, that type of stuff. Always had dirt on their feet, needed that daily. Uh, you know, so perhaps, you know, there's room for that in the church and maybe we'll do that sometime in some way. I'm not sure how, but the, the thing that he's getting a point here, a, a point across here, are you serving each other? Are you serving each other? Are you serving your brothers and sisters? If so, how? If so, when? You know, we talked about this at the men's retreat, that as we realize the grace that's been given to us, it's a natural response to give up our lives as a living sacrifice on the altar of worship. And a fruit of that being a living sacrifice is that we are going to be using our gifts to edify the body. Are you a Christian here today? Is your life on the altar? And are you using your gifts to edify the body, to serve one another? Are you in a lowliness of mind state, serving the people around you and esteeming them as better than yourself? There's a lot of ways to do that. And I plead with you not to sit by idly, but to take Jesus's example and wash each other's feet. Probably a lot of different ways that we can do that. And so then we come to verse 31, where the Lord said, and we're in Luke 22, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So Simon, Simon, you know, he's asked for you, but the word you there is plural. He's asked for you disciples because he wants to thrash you. He wants to beat you. He wants to tear you. He wants to beat you like you beat the wheat to get all of the chaff and the, the stock and all of that off. Now, nowadays, we don't really, you know, beat the grain to get the chaff off of it, but we have machines that do it, you know, the combines. When I was a kid, we had a combine on our ranch and I got curious one day and I climbed up inside it, <laughs> not in the cab. I climbed up the back to see where all of this stuff was coming from. You know, you don't, you don't really get that far in there, but if you're small enough, you can get a ways in there, you know? And I climbing in, you know, and squeezing through stuff and whoa, it comes in through here and then it, whoa, you know? And, and then it yeah, I'm really glad that farm safety videos hadn't been out back then. You know, I probably should have watched them, but, uh, you know, when you watch it all in the process, you know, the combine eats up these nice ripe heads of grain, you know, and the wheat and pulls it in and then it begins to thrash it and beat it and tear it apart and rip apart the stock and the and the the shell and all of that to where all you have left is a pure totally clean seed and it's tossed into the bin with the rest of the millions of seeds and then it squirts out or shoots out the um all the chaff and you know that's exactly what satan wanted to do to these guys he wanted to get peter he wanted to get james and john and judas and all of these guys and just thrash them and beat them and pummel them. He wanted to tear them apart and rip them apart. 
But then Jesus goes on to say, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And that when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus says, I prayed for you. And at this point, it's singular. He's talking to Peter. I've prayed for you, Peter. And you can read that prayer in John chapter 17, the prayer for the disciples, that they would be unified, that they would be able to run the race and finish the race, that they would have intimacy with the Lord, that there would be um, a brotherhood amongst them. They're in John chapter 17. But he predicts that Peter's going to deny. He says it a lot more bluntly in the other gospels. You know, you're going to deny me before the day is up. Um, But here in Luke, it's it's kind of hinted in Luke that I prayed for you because you're going to get beaten like wheat. But I've prayed that when you return, that you'll strengthen your brother. When you repent from this denying of me. In verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. I'm feeling like a patriot right now. I've got a cause. You know, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I don't know what you're talking. I'm returned from where? I'm right here with you. I'll strengthen the brethren right now. What, what are you talking about? You know, I, I'm ready not only go to, to go to prison, uh, but to, to die with you. And, you know, Peter, you know, the, Matthew's gospel says that Peter says, even if all of these are made to stumble because of you, I will not be made. I will go to prison. I will die with you. Jesus tells him again, no, I'm telling you, you're going to deny me a second time. And Mark's gospel says that Peter vehemently disagreed. I will not deny that word vehemently means to, to scream out with intense emotions that you're inclined to act violently towards. In other words, he grabbed, you know, like grabbed Jesus by the collar. I will not deny you. You know, why are you listening to me? I will not. I'm going to go to prison with you. I will die. However you die, I'm dying with you. We'll take over Jerusalem for your kingdom. That's where his mind still was. And he says, no, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. Matthew tells us that all of the disciples were vehemently saying, none of us will, Lord, not only none of us will deny you. By the end of the chapter, we're going to see that that's not true. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. He said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Got to love those set of verses. Any man here who wants to buy a pistol this afternoon, go buy one. Jesus tells us to, okay? That's not what's happening here. But, but, you know, Jesus says, hey, when you went out before and you didn't, I told you not to take a cloak, money bag, any of that stuff, weren't you provided? Absolutely provided for. Now, don't expect the hospitality, but expect hostility. The world hates me. It's going to hate you. The trials are going to start, you know? interesting section that only Luke talks about, you know, go buy a sword, go buy a sword. Jesus, what, what are you saying? We can defend ourselves. Okay. We can defend ourselves. We can defend our families, you know, and and they go on to say, um, you know, verse 37, for I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. It's enough. Interesting section, you know, go buy a sword. Here we have two, you know, you can kind of picture him awkwardly holding it, not really knowing what to do with it, you know, and they're clanking together and, <laughs> you know. It's enough, Peter. <laughs> Two swords. Good job. You know, um, I don't know what they're planning on doing with the sword. We do see it makes an appearance in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was there something in them? They're kind of like, oh, we're going to take over the whole Roman gar- government with two swords or, you know, maybe get Jesus out of this situation. You know, it's weird. No one really knows what's going on, but it's enough. Two swords is enough. And uh, verse 39 Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. Uh, so 
before they went out on the mountain, Matthew's gospel says before they left and went over, they sang a hymn there in the upper room. And I like that. You know, I like to think of Jesus singing and the disciples singing together. What hymn? We don't really know. You know, probably not Amazing Grace or When I Survey the Wonderful Cross or Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You know, those weren't made until a couple or, you know, centuries later. But um, some hymn, something special, an act of worship uh, that, that they would sing as they crossed the brook, brook Kidron over, you know, so here's Jerusalem, the city. They would cross, go down the brook Kidron right there, and then they would begin to make their way back up on the Mount of Olives, which sits opposite the temple there. And uh, they went into this area of Gethsemane, this garden. Gethsemane is this garden of olive trees. It's an awesome place to go to, even to this day, because uh, there are olive trees there that are over 2,000 years old. Okay? And they still produce olives. Uh, the oil is used in, in olive oil sold from Israel today. So these incredible trees, these trees are old, man. They, they look like old people. You know, they've got these wrinkles, you know, there's something crazy. And it's funny, there's a few of them that they're leaning like this. And some guys went in and they made, took bricks, just totally like, let's get some bricks. And they just stacked bricks up to like the belly of the tree and it's like, someone, I need my cane, you know, and it's just leaning over 2,000 years of hanging out in Jerusalem. Special place to be though, knowing that those trees were there when Jesus was there. So it's a very olivey area, okay? Gethsemane itself means olive press. Olive press. And that's interesting because oppressing what was happening to Jesus there. Just as you would take olives and place them upon the, the grinding stone. You know, the grinding stone had a little spout that would drop down into a receptacle and you would take a, a big stone and just bam, 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 and beat those olives and squeeze them and crush them so that the oil would drip down into the receptacle. So at the Mount, or at, um, Mount of Olives on the Garden of Gethsemane, so was Jesus crushed before a whip had touched his back, before a crown of thorns had been squeezed into his head, before any spitting had happened on him or anything like that. He was being crushed here at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's here that he experiences the crushing weight of the task that he was about to go perform. And he came to this place and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw away and he knelt down and he prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And he being in agony, prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he'd come to his disciples and found them sleeping with sorrow. So Luke's short account, you know, we're going to read Matthew's a little bit longer account, but you begin to see the crushing taking place as he's exceedingly sorrowful, as he cries out in prayer. And as we come to the Garden of Gethsemane passage, we've got to ask ourselves, really ask ourselves, what is happening here? It's not a nice little story about a garden and a guy praying in it. You know, there is something beyond that that is happening. And instead of asking that, sometimes we just feel and experience the moment of reading this. We let a little bit of emotion get involved. We have a tear. And we think about, oh, he's praying, he's crying, he's sweating blood. We get emotional and psychological about it, but we forget to ask, why is this happening in the first place? What is going on? You guys, what is going on is the crushing has begun. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says that it pleased him, pleased the Lord to crush Jesus or bruise Jesus. And that crushing had started to take place. Hebrews tells us, and all things, Jesus had to become a man. And he goes on to say, 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people or to make atonement or redemption for the sins of the people. What's happening here is the God-man is being vulnerable. He's being vulnerable as we're, we're allowed to see uh, the task ahead of him. He sees the task ahead of him. And, and there's intense struggle in Jesus here. There's intense struggle. Now, as we look the next couple of weeks at what they call Jesus' passion or the uh, trial, the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus, the passages are very short. I mean, this is the most important event of all of history uh, next to the resurrection. And two chapters, that's it. Moby Dick is longer than that, you know? The most important chapter of all of history is two chapters. Most event is two cha- Most important event is two chapters. You know, we want a little more of the drama. We want to know more of what happened. We want to know more what he was thinking and feeling. And it's in a sense good that they don't put all that in there because we would get more emotional about that rather than rather than realizing that what he's doing is being poured out as a ransom from the Garden of Gethsemane on. Let's look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 32. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took that inner group Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. I mean, if you could just move beyond our physical realm right now and just let your imagination picture what's happening here. The God-man, deeply troubled, deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. It's hard to read this. I can't get the right tone. You know, my soul. How do you think Jesus was saying this to these guys? It wasn't boldly like I am. My soul is exceedingly. No, he was exceedingly sorrowful, deeply distressed. Even to death, he says, I could die right now. I am so sorrowful. Stay here and watch. Stay here and watch. Another gospel says, watch and pray. You know, sometimes we have to pray with our eyes open. Okay. Sometimes there's situations around us that we need to be praying. There's intense spiritual battle going on. This is one of the most intense spiritual battles in the history of mankind. This is the other opportunity that Satan has been waiting for to tempt Jesus one last time. This is it. And he's asking us to watch and to pray, to be uh, open eyed in our prayer. And it says he went a little farther, a stone's throw away, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, the rock, had become Simon the pebble again. Are you shaking like gravel? Why won't you just pray, man? And he went away and he prayed and he spoke the same words and he returned. He found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. One of the gospels says that, that, that these disciples were sleepy from sorrow. They were sleepy from sorrow. They, they were seeing what Jesus was going through, that he was a stone's throw away. So, you know, picture however far away that is. They're hearing his weeping. You know, we weep with those who weep, man, but the men's retreat, I was a blubbering crybaby, you know, with some of these testimonies, as guys would cry and man, that was, I'm crying. I hear this guy crying. I'm crying. I'm moved right now. They're sorrowful by what's happening. They're sleepy. Have you, do you remember the day your mom or your dad died or your sister or your grandma or a child and your sorrow led you to just the end of yourself 
where you could just lay on the bed and pass out. That's what these eyes were going through. In fact, their eyes were heavy, it says there in verse 40, and they didn't even know how to answer him. I'm just so tired from all this. I don't even know what to say. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so he says, watch and pray, guys. While I go pray, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. What temptation? You know, don't fall into lust while you're at the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, was that what it was? No, the temptation that's being talked about here was the temptation to be sidelined from the game that was happening or from the race that they were to be running. You know, they were all that night going to be challenged uh, in, their, in their loyalty to Christ. And they didn't pray and they did fall into temptation and they ran away from Jesus. We'll get to the end of that uh, today. But notice that the, the anguish that Jesus going through was so severe that in verse 43 of Luke 22, which is where we're at, an angel was dispatched to Jesus's aid to strengthen him. What is going on in the spiritual realm right here? What is happening to Jesus that an angel needs to come? What kind of sorrow is he going through that an angel would need to come and, and, and try to strengthen him? But we see that that angel didn't help much. As much as CBS would tell you that being touched by an angel is something to be happy about, you know, being touched by an angel is, is not more strong than the Holy Spirit's power in you. It's not better than having the, the inspired word of God at your fingertips, you know, and it didn't do all that much to Jesus at this point because verse 44, he was in agony. He was in agony and he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We all know Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And it's here in verse 44 that we see his perfect humanity and that he recoils from the thought of pain, from the thought of betrayal, from the thought of his brothers don't believe him. He's an embarrassment to his family. His best friends are going to deny him in 10 minutes. He's going to be crucified by the Roman soldiers that he created, rejected by the Jews that he'd been so faithful to provide for for the last few thousand years. There was so much pain going on. And then the thought of future physical pain, excruciating pain, in about two weeks probably, we're going to do an in-depth study of the medical aspects of the crucifixion and how we get the word excruciating from the word crucify. The physical pain that Jesus was going to go through was excruciating. And there was no anesthetic. You know, there was no numbing agent. They tried to give him some wine vinegar. That would do nothing. Let's get real. Okay, really? Take a suck of a sponge that has some wine vinegar on it. Probably not the Novocaine of the day. Probably not the, you know, laughing gas or whatever. You know, he knew he was going to go through the physical pain. And we see he's a real man by the real recoiling of the thought of pain that's ahead. Socially and emotionally, he's, he's going to be wounded tonight. And he's sorrowful. And he's in anguish. You know, uh, no one was going to hold his hand through this event. His own father was going to turn his face away and allow this sacrifice to be made. The sacrifice of his son. No one would hold his, his hand through the event. You know, any trial that we go through, we need someone to hold our hand in that trial. You know, I, I went to um, Portland on Monday or Tuesday uh, to have a, an oral surgeon look at my jaw issue that I've been having. And uh, so I went in and, and they had to take this special x-ray. And I went all by myself to Portland, thought it would be just a quick, quick day, you know, or whatever. Uh, I'm laying on this x-ray table, and I know this is nothing compared to what so many of you have gone through. Heck, if you had a baby, you've been through way more than I ever have. This is nothing, really nothing. I mean, I laid out on this table. They, they, there's a pillow on the table, and I'm like, oh, this looks kind of nice. And the guy was so funny. He's like, nope, that's not for your head, you know. He puts it in the middle of my back so that 
you know, I'm, on the table, I'm like this. And then he goes, okay, now bite the back of your left shoulder. What? You know, so I'm doing that so that the x-ray can get right down through here. And so they go, okay, now we're going to um, numb you up and stick a needle into your jaw joint and fill it with liquid, okay? And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know? And so the tiny little prick of Novocaine, horrible for me. You know, I do not like pain. No one's there to hold my hand as I'm like this. So I held my own hand, my love handle. I grabbed a hold of this love handle and I squeezed. I mean, there were nurses in the room. You got to be tough around the ladies, am I right? You know, I'm squeezing, I'm sweating, you know, I'm acting like, oh, that doesn't even hurt. What else do you got? You know, I can feel my jaw moving forward from the liquid pushing, you know, and, and I'm just like, mama, you know. Probably wasn't even as bad as, you know, the beginning of having a cavity filled. That, you know, but that's me, okay? Now you know who your pastor is. I know, it's pretty sad. Pretty sad. But Jesus had no one around him that, that cared. That was going to hold his hand through the event. And the anguish was severe, horrific. You know, Luke, the physician, tells us that Jesus sweat drops of blood. You know, remember the theme of Luke. The point Luke is trying to get across is the humanity of Jesus. Okay, um, and so it's neat to have a physician be that guy that does that. As he points out, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Oh, come on, Roy, now you're just getting weird. You know, uh, that picture of Mary in that one place started sweating blood too. You know, what is that the same thing? You know, no, he's saying Jesus was a real man with real medical conditions. In fact, this condition is called hematohydrosis. And listen to uh, Dr. Frank Zigubi. He's the chief medical examiner for Rockland County, New York. And he says, this condition is well known. And there have been many cases of it. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict, is so tight. And then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture and the blood goes into the sweat glands. As the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. So what he's saying is Jesus was a man in, a, in an excruciating circumstance. The stress was more than most of us have ever been through. But he endured. And as he said, Father, there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way that mankind can be saved, and not just the Jews, you know, because I could come into Jerusalem today and stand as the conqueror of Rome, but the rest of the world would die and go to hell. You know, the Gentiles, is there any other way for the Gentiles? You say, there's no other way. There's no other way. And Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Doesn't it seem like Jesus wasn't heard in the garden? Like he was all by himself and nobody was listening. No, he was heard. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered and by enduring this. He was obedient, Philippians 2 tells us, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so while it seemed that there was no answer, is there any other way that this you know, this world can be saved. Can you let this cup of, of suffering pass from me? Silence. But there was an answer in the silence. The answer was there is no other way but by the shedding of the blood of this perfect man. 
that the world could be saved. There's no other way. And that's why Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 tells us that if our righteousness came by our good deeds and by keeping the Ten Commandments, then Jesus died in vain. He wouldn't have even needed to come to earth, let alone die and suffer and be a servant. His death was in vain if you're going to heaven because you're a good person. But the truth is, you are not a good person. And I am not a good person. And Romans tells us that there is none good. No, not one person. There's none that does good. Everyone is seeking after his own desires for his own gain. Your God is yourself and you're an idol worshiper. Or you're lustful and you're an adulterer and you're a murderer through your hate. You cannot go to heaven by the works of your flesh. Or else Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. And he did die. So that anyone who believed in his name and that work that he did on the cross will not perish but have everlasting life. And if you believe in him, he is going to take your life and he is going to change your life. What a beautiful thing. But the cup couldn't pass. And the God man had to die. In verse 45, then he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. I like the way Matthew puts it because Jesus is crying out and, and, you know, keeps coming back. And it seems like he's just, you know, he is in the state of anguish. But right at the end of of Matthew's account, it's almost like there's this thrust of boldness and bravery that comes into Jesus as he goes, it is enough. Get up. Look, they're coming. And he just rises to the occasion that, that is before him. And he boldly goes and he meets this army that is coming to take him away. In verse 47, we're just going to go through verse 53. And while he was still speaking, behold, notice this, a multitude And he who is called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Sometimes we picture, you know, like 15, you know, uh, soldiers and a couple of the priests coming to arrest Jesus. But the word there of a band of soldiers or a cohort of soldiers that John uses speaks of 600 warriors. 600, a multitude came to arrest Jesus. That's why Judas needed to kiss Jesus. It was dark. They all had beards. They all had, you know, whitish, tannish robes on. They all looked the same. Judas knew who Jesus was. Plus there was 600 other people there, uh, you know, to try and figure out which guy Jesus was. Okay. And so as they came, John chapter 18 tells us they came and Jesus met them and said, who are you looking for? Again, a rhetorical question. Uh, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am he, and this is incredible. When he said, I am he, all of the soldiers fell down backwards. 600 soldiers fell down backwards by the word of God's mouth. In Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see at Jesus' second coming that all of the armies of the world are going to point their guns toward Jesus and try to kill Jesus as he's coming back to the earth. And it says he's going to speak a word and wipe them out with the sword of his mouth. That's how powerful and sovereign he is, even as the God man. And he says, I am he and 600 men fall down backwards. And then they get up again and he says, whom are you seeking? And they said again, Jesus. (laughs) He said, It's me. And somewhere in there, Judas went and and kissed. And it says there, you know, verse 48. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Really? You're using this sign of devotion between brothers and friends to, to be a sign of betrayal? Man, knowing what Solomon meant there, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. You know, sometimes a friend has to wound you to help you and to see what you're doing in your life is wrong. But the enemy will just tell you what you want to hear. 
They'll just tell you what you want to hear. And so this enemy, with deceitfulness, kissed Jesus. Verse 49, Then those around him saw that he, what was going to happen. They said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Literally, the sword. <laughs> or the two that we have. You know, should we, should we strike with this mass arsenal that we have here? Look out, soldiers. Uh, and verse 50, we know it was Peter. One of them didn't even wait for Jesus to answer. And he struck Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and cut off his right ear. I mean, they're in trouble because the sword there, it's, it's the root word for the word gladiator. It speaks of that sharp, short sword that could hide under your garments. It was used for stabbing somebody, thrusting it through them. And here Peter, you know, uses it like a fisherman, like, you know, be honest with you, that kind of hurt. But what do you plan on doing with that sword with these 600 guys here? You know, so, so Peter, you know, and we're going to talk about more about Peter next week. That was actually a pretty cool thing that Peter did. You know, that was a pretty neat thing that he did because he was basically trying to start a war. But he showed some, some neat bravery there that he's going to lose for a little while next week. He'll get it back later, but actually a pretty neat thing that Peter did. And, you know, and, and the other gospels say that, that, you know, Jesus just said, you know, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, Peter. He says, if I wanted to, I could send down 12 legions of angels to help me out right now. Legion has about at most 6,000 angels. So, you know, 12 of those would be about 72,000, uh, angels there. And, uh, there's an incredible number of angels that could come, but he didn't send them because it was necessary for him to drink this cup. And then 51, Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And isn't that a picture of what Jesus does to us? He saves his enemies. Here's a guy that's coming to kill him. We were enemies with God. Maybe today you're here and you're an enemy of God. Jesus says you're either with me or you're against me. Are you 100% with him? If not, you're his enemy. But today he wants to reach out, maybe not touch your ear, but he wants to touch your heart and make your heart that's a heart of stone, hardened by sin. He wants to make it a heart of flesh again. Soft, moldable, able to feel, feel his presence, but you have to permit it. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. And he's saying today, will you permit even this that I could heal you? Verse 52, and Jesus said to the chief priests, the captains of the temple and the elders who'd come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? I mean, this is ridiculous, guys. When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You know, I've always spoken everything in, in public, you know, you could have always come and got me, but now you're doing this little dramatic, you know, arrest. It's ridiculous, but it's prophecy being fulfilled and it's your time. So do what you got to do. Mark's gospel. It's interesting. You know, Mark wasn't an original disciple and uh, he was about 16 years old at this time. And history tells us that John Mark or Mark, uh, that his home was the first meeting place for the early church. Most believe it's where the, the upper room, um, Passover happened as well as it's, you know, in Romans chapter or Acts chapter 12, it's where the prayer meeting happened, where we meet Rhoda. Remember Rhoda? Uh, so Mark's family was, was getting involved at this point. Mark being 16 years old, if it was the place where, um, the Passover meal took place and communion was instituted. You can just picture a 16 year old boy, not in with the other guys, but he's in bed at night and he's listening to the words of, of Jesus and the disciples. And he's hearing about the betrayers and all that stuff. And you know, it's getting late, it's really late and they go and you can just picture him following them because Mark tells us that a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him. When, when Jesus was being arrested, they laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and ran from them naked. And Mark's the only guy that writes about that. And it probably was Mark. 
Of course, it might not have been, but it probably was. And, uh, and it's just kind of, kind of an interesting little piece of history there. But as Psalms 88 tells us, you've put my acquaintances far from me and you've made me an abomination to them. And the other gospels tell us that, that everybody fled from Jesus at that point. He was alone by himself in the garden with 600 soldiers arresting him. And next week we'll see that they're going to take him to Caiaphas's house. And next week we'll study the beginning of the trial, uh, the trial of Jesus. So Stuart, why don't you come on up? I'm not sure why it's so late. Sometimes that happens. Please forgive me. Maybe the x-ray story went a little long. I don't know. Definitely want to try to get you guys out of here at a decent hour on home fellowship nights so that you've got a good afternoon before then. But as we just respond to the word, let's go ahead and set our stuff aside. And Why don't we stand? It's funny this week, Rich goes, Rory, what are you teaching on this week? I was like, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, what's the application going to be for that? I don't know. (laughs) But man, as we look at Jesus in his fully God, fully man state, we see him in agony. And at any moment, he could have said, forget this. I am not going to drink this cup. I am not going to suffer like this. You guys are on your own. But while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us to wash us from our sins, to cleanse us, and to make us new. And if that doesn't make you want to love Jesus and give your life up to him, nothing is going to. And so I plead with you today, if you're not a Christian, you came through those doors not a Christian today and your heart was hard towards God man today will you examine Jesus and the suffering that he went through when he had you in mind he knew your deep need to be forgiven of the lusts and the hate and the covetousness and the pride and the idolatry. He knew your deep need, so he endured the cross. And I plead with you, surrender to him and love him today. And as you love him, as you receive what he did for you, you'll be forgiven And naturally, he will start to change you. He'll take away the desires for those things that you shouldn't have. He'll give you strength. He'll heal the years that your life had been destroyed. He'll heal those years that sin destroyed. But first, you must permit even this, that you'll let him touch your heart and heal you and make you new. If that's you today, will you respond to Jesus' suffering and just lift up your hand to the Lord right now and say, Lord, that's me. The guy that Rory's talking about is me. I'm hard-hearted. I'm rebellious against you. I don't even understand you. But when I see you in that garden, I love you and I want you. Lord, will you take me and forgive me of my sins? Wash me as white as snow. Will you forget my sins and give me the strength to never return to them? Just lift your hand up where you're at if that's you and just respond to the Lord. As you lift your hand, lift your heart and say, Lord, just forgive me. I want to be in Jesus. And as you respond to him this morning, you are saved. 
You've been bought with a price. You've been made a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And today you can begin the walk of that newness of life. You're forgiven. And Lord, as we Christians here see your deep love for us, we are prompted to love and to worship you. And so we'll do just that. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.